Open your Bibles, brothers, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And as I told you, we're going to be looking at the passion of Christ. And I've titled this opening message for our fall series as we wrap up John by the time that we get to the month of December. The passion of Christ savoring his sovereign submission. Savoring Jesus' sovereign submission because that's really what we see in our passage today. Jesus' submission to the Father's will that he would go to the cross. And as I mentioned, it's remarkable, isn't it, how quickly summer came and summer went. And pretty soon, before we can blink, right, the holidays will be upon us. And of course, the next holiday that we really care about, nobody really cares about Halloween, right? Anybody looking forward to Halloween? I'm not. Not even the candy anymore, right? Really, the holiday that we're looking forward to the most as men that is next is Thanksgiving. Yes? Can I get an amen? amen? Not only just being able to hang out with people that, that we love, brethren, family, extended family, and all of that, and being able to see them again, but especially because of the opportunity to enjoy delicious food, okay? As you guys can already tell, I love talking about food, right? But you, go, you know what? Some of the blame is on you guys because ever since I got to Compass, all we ever do is eat food, right? <laughs> meals on Tuesday nights, meals on Fridays, throughout the week and all of that. So I think I came to the right place. But Thanksgiving is a special time, right? Because of these delicious meals that we get to enjoy together. And nobody uh, likes to just look at Thanksgiving food. Don't we enjoy tasting and savoring that Thanksgiving food? I do. Well, I think in like manner, as we embark on this study of John chapters 18 through 21, I want us to take that same attitude as we study the passion of Jesus. I want us to really, really entrust our hearts to the Lord, brothers, this fall, not only to know the contents of John chapters 18 through 21, but really to, to savor what we're about to learn from this particular uh, passion of Jesus which would include his suffering and the trials and his death, obviously, and then his burial and resurrection. We need to savor these chapters. You know, there's a, a big difference between just studying these chapters and actually savoring or really relishing or partaking of what we're going to see here and really appreciating the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is my heart for us as we look at these chapters Many of us perhaps have studied this particular part of the Lord's life, and maybe you've been impacted in the past, but maybe uh, of late, you're not as impacted as you were before, but we need to really appreciate what we see in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus here in these particular uh, chapters, so that our thinking is renewed, so that our hearts are, are moved all the more, so that our actions are driven toward greater loving obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's been my prayer. That as we look at this particular section of John, these next few months, that we would be moved all the more to be men on mission who want to proclaim this Jesus to a lost world. You continue to hear the kinds of things that are happening in our country, right? And in our world. A couple of brothers and I were talking just a little while ago. Things are getting worse and worse. Things are spiraling downward more and more. And rather than being fearful, we know how the story ends. Amen? And so all the more, we need to be bringing the message of hope to people who desperately need to hear about Jesus. 
Well, I pray that our study in John chapters 18 through 21 would do that all the more, that we would be propelled all the more to proclaim Jesus and him crucified and him resurrected and exalted and returning as well, okay? So we have a chance to do just that beginning tonight, to savor the person and the work of our Lord Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And don't forget about the big picture. We've been obviously gone out of the uh, Gospel of John for a few weeks. But don't forget about the fact that this has been a long week, passion week, in the life of our Lord Jesus. It's been a week of, full of pushback and people who have been hostile toward the Lord Jesus, especially the religious leaders. Just imagine this particular week how tired Jesus and his disciples must have been. On top of that, if you remember, this is Thursday night where Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated this Passover meal that commemorates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt in the Old Testament. So they've just celebrated this Passover in the upper room. Jesus has taught them. Jesus has instructed his disciples. Jesus has exhorted his disciples. He's comforted them by means of his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. There's been much conversation that's taken place. This is an emotionally packed night, full of twists and turns as we've seen. And now it's close to midnight, maybe a bit after midnight. And this is where we pick it up in our text, where I want us to savor the journey of our Lord to the cross here in this scene one, if you want to put it that way, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what John has been moving us toward. To, this, to Jesus going to the cross. And on a number of occasions, if you remember in the Gospel of John, it's been said that Jesus' hour had not quite come yet, right? But now the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so let's savor, appreciate, relish the portraits of Christ given to us here in his passion beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? If you're taking notes... I want us first to savor his unwavering determination. Write that down. I want us to savor his unwavering determination. One thing that we've learned about our Lord, but we learn all the more here in the Garden of Gethsemane, is that nothing was going to deter Jesus from accomplishing his mission and going to the cross. Up until now, he's avoided his enemies because his hour had not yet come, but now he's, he's determined to suffer. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning all his words in the upper room, but especially the words of his high priestly prayer on behalf of his disciples, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So think about this journey. They depart from the upper room. Eventually, they, they exit the city of Jerusalem through the city gate then they descend down and cross the Kidron Valley to the east. And then slowly they ascend up to the Mount of Olives to a very familiar place to the Lord Jesus that we're going to see in a minute. Now, one super important thing to note here is this, that during Passover, as you know, thousands upon thousands of animals were slain in the temple. Remember that? And all of that blood, brothers would eventually, through channels, make its way out of the city and onto, onto the Kidron Valley. It was quite the, the shocking sight to see, so much blood. And so picture that imagery. As Jesus and his disciples are, are crossing the Kidron Valley, there's this river of blood 
And it's the blood of thousands of lambs that were sacrificed during the Passover week that could never take away sins, as Hebrews says. And so here is Jesus and his disciples crossing this Kidron Valley through a river of, of blood. It's the blood of thousands of lambs that were sacrificed. And here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist announced to us back in John chapter 1, verse 29. What a moment, right? Especially in the mind of our Lord as he now anticipates going to the cross to die for sins. What a moment. And yet he's determined to be that sacrifice. And so verse 1 tells us that he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, note, which he and his disciples entered. From the other Gospels, we know that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means oil press, which indicates that this was most likely a place where, where olives were pressed in order to make olive oil. Most likely, this place was a sort of walled olive grove. And it seems that it was a, a private garden, a private garden that was owned by someone who knew Jesus and who granted Jesus and his disciples regular access to this particular sort of mini retreat location for his disciples and for Jesus. In fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 39, tells us that it was Jesus' custom to visit this particular location. And then John is quick to tell us why Jesus chooses to go here. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place. Underline that. He knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now let me ask you, if you knew and you're aware that going to a particular location is going to get you into trouble, do you go there? No, not naturally, right? I mean, we do everything to avoid potential conflict, to avoid the possibility of, of hostility or harm upon us. We don't run toward it. And yet in the, in the life of our Lord Jesus, in the case of our Lord, Jesus actually goes to the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew that Judas would go exactly and precisely to that place to look for him. That's where the Lord goes, to the lion's den, so to speak, in the sense that Judas is going to go there looking for him. And so the Lord is, is courageous, isn't he? He's not running or shying away from conflict here. He's aware that Judas is going to go there, but he's determined, resolved to go to the cross because that is why he came. He understood his purpose, and he was determined to fulfill that purpose. Someone may say, well, of course he was okay with this. After all, I mean, not only was he man, but he is, he is and was God. So it wasn't really that hard, but this is simply not the case. If you read the parallel accounts to John of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what has Jesus been doing prior to Judas Iscariot arriving to the Garden of Gethsemane? Anyone? Praying. Jesus has been in deep, dependent prayer before his Father. In fact, all three of the parallel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look them up, record Jesus' three, at least three prayer sessions before his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And so fervent and so intense was Jesus' agony in the midst of what he is anticipating is going to take place that Luke chapter 22 verse 44 says this, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Anybody ever have that happen to you? Not me. So if you think that this moment was something that was easy for Jesus, think again. If you don't think that this was a, an excruciating moment for Jesus, think again, brothers. And if we learn anything from Jesus' fervent prayers and deep agony is that Jesus was and is truly human. And that the struggle he experienced was not to just put on some kind of a show. It was a real struggle that the Lord Jesus had, short of any sin that he committed for he was perfect and blameless. Otherwise, he couldn't go to the cross and qualify to be our redeemer, right? In fact, if anything, his struggle was, was greater. His struggle and testing moment was greater than anything we could ever experience precisely because he is God and he is perfect. By the way, a great book to read on that issue of Jesus' humanity is the book by Bruce Ware, The Man Christ Jesus. Some of you have been, had emailed me over the summer and asked questions about Jesus' humanity and the things that we see about his deity in the Gospel of John and how to correlate those and sort of unify them and all of that. This is a, that is a great book. Bruce Ware's The Man Christ Jesus is one of the best books you can read on that issue of the humanity of Christ. And so it was a determined Jesus who came out on the other side of those prayers, those prayer sessions, all the more resolved to do what he had come to do. And listen, it wasn't a tragedy what happened to him. It wasn't a tragedy. So many of the films that we might watch um, on television or whatever, or go watch at the movies, are filled with what we might, what people call tragedy. Boy, that was such a tragedy that that happened in that particular movie. And what people mean by that is that traumatic stuff happens that is unexpected, that is unavoidable, that wasn't supposed to happen, right? But in the case of Jesus, you understand, it wasn't a tragedy that he died. Jesus came precisely to do just that. And so when you contemplate Gethsemane, never forget that what we're seeing is Jesus fulfilling his father's predetermined eternal plan, right? Rather than some tragedy happening to him that he didn't have control over. More than that, brothers, savor the fact that our Lord, because of his great love for you, like Flint, was determined to go to the cross to suffer and die for sinners such as you and I. Sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. I want us to this, through this study to, to be gripped by that reality. That we might remember at the moment of our conversion, whenever that was, month, weeks or months or years ago, that you and I might return to that moment and be reminded of the, of the sweetness and the appreciation that we had toward our Lord Jesus for the fact that he went to the cross and persevered through this particular suffering. He actually chose to do this for you who are in Christ Jesus. So let us appreciate and savor his courage here. Secondly, we must savor his unrivaled authority. Write that down. As we look at this opening scene of Jesus' passion, you and I must savor his unrivaled authority. Luke chapter 18, verse 36 tells us that Judas had been looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Well, now he had this opportunity. Look at verse 3. 
So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, went to the Garden of Gethsemane with lanterns and torches and weapons. Remember, it's pitch dark. They didn't have street lights in those days or flashlights, right? So they carried lanterns and, and torches to light the path and to be able to see things. Furthermore, note how John gives us a full picture of this, really this mob that arrives to betray, to, to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ with Judas. They, he mentions a band of soldiers there in verse 3, which translates a, a Roman cohort. He arrives with a, with a Roman cohort or a Roman battalion, which consisted of some 600 Roman soldiers, at least in addition to those 600 Roman soldiers, you have Jewish officers, those in charge of, of guarding the temple. And who knows how many of those were there. In addition to that, Luke 22 verse 52 says that there were religious leaders present as well, wanting to take in on, on all of the action. And so this is a, a great mob that you have here that Judas has procured. Matthew 26, 47 says that a great crowd or multitude was present there in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And they're armed. These people are locked and loaded for a fight. Why? Why is that? Well, remember that Judas has witnessed the power of Christ, hasn't he? He's witnessed the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. He knows Jesus' authority and Jesus' influence. Jesus asks them in Luke 22, verse 52, you know, are you coming out against me as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, you're coming to me in secrecy, late at night, as if I'm some kind of a criminal when I was ministering amongst you all the time. And this is how you're treating me. Now, before we look at the authority of Jesus in verses 4 through 6, Mark Chapter 14, verses 44 through 45, really rounds out some of the details for us a bit more. And that passage, Mark chapter 14, verses 44 through 45, tells us that Judas had pre-planned to betray Jesus by, with, a, with a signal. What was that signal? A kiss. That whoever he kissed, they were to seize that individual and arrest him. And so Judas does that. Upon arriving, it says that he went up to Jesus and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Now listen, in those days, a kiss on the hand was symbolic of, of simple respect, of basic honor for somebody. But to kiss someone on the cheek, that meant intimate friendship. That meant that, that, that you were showing loyalty to someone. That signified deep affection for someone. What audacity. On the part of Judas Iscariot. What lack of genuineness. What a hypocrite this individual was. What a two-faced liar, right? And what's especially disturbing is that the Greek word in Mark chapter 14, verse 45 for kissed him, translated there is the word phileo, which means brotherly love or brotherly affection. And in addition to the word phileo there, there is this little word, a preposition attached to the front of that word phileo, making it kata phileo, which intensifies the meaning of this particular action by Judas. It gives the sense that Judas kissed Jesus fervently, that he did it in such a way as if he actually meant it. 
It's the same word used in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, of the woman who, who was repeatedly uh, expressing devotion to Jesus, fervently kissing Jesus out of genuine love for him. The difference, of course, is that this guy is a hypocrite. He's deceived Judas Iscariot. He's duped by his own greed and by Satan himself. Now watch this. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, that's John's inspired commentary, by the way, some 50 years later as he's writing, John says, market folks, Jesus knew what was about to befall him. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock to him, right? Verse 4, Jesus came forward, knowing all that would happen to him, and said to them, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And notice there in your English text that the word he there is italicized. That means it's not there. Literally, he simply answered, I am. Ego a me. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John, right? It's a title reserved only for one who is deity, one who is God. Remember Moses back in Exodus? What should I tell them when they ask me, who, who has, who, why, should, why should they even listen to me, God? And God says to Moses, tell them, Moses, I am who I am has sent you. It's God's tetragrammaton, his, his personal name. And so Jesus answers, I am, I am. Now notice the power and authority of Jesus' words as he simply utters this in, in verse 5. Judas, who betrayed him. John already said this back in verse 2, right? He wants to emphasize, Judas, can you believe it? He's the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, with this mob. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground like dominoes. One on top of another, falling down. Boy, you know, that there, there, are those, there are those moments as you read Scripture that you, you just wish you could be there, like the parting of the Red Sea, right? This is one of those moments for me right here. I wish I could be there to see what, what, when Jesus pronounced that, that, said those words and they all fell down. Amazing. What unrivaled authority, what majestic power. And the Gospels repeatedly, brothers, emphasize the power and the authority of Jesus, right? We've seen throughout the Gospels that his power over the demonic realm, his power over the forces of nature, his power over the, the laws of nature, human sickness, disease, hunger, over and over. Again, Jesus, by his mere words, could do ev anything there's no limit to the power of Jesus. He's unrivaled in, in power and authority. And now he displays that authority towards his, his enemies, his arch enemies here. In fact, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, write that verse down. Matthew 26, 53 records Jesus saying this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Yikes, right? One legion was how many angels? Anyone? 6,000 angels. 12 legions, 72,000 angels. Who remembers what one angel, the angel of the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35, did to the Assyrian soldiers? 180,000 plus, right? What did you say? 185,000? Assyrian soldiers wiped out by one angel? Dead corpses all over the place the next morning. 
This is so that we can put in perspective, brothers, the unrivaled power and authority of Jesus. This is the kind of vast army that is at Jesus' disposal. It wasn't for lack of power or authority that Jesus went to the cross like some helpless victim. He wasn't helpless at all. If anything, he gave them permission to put him on the cross, right? No one can match Jesus' power or authority. See, what's the implication for us? And I think it's this. This is the same Jesus, man of God, in your midst of your struggles and your weaknesses, including my own. This is the same Jesus that we follow and we worship and we depend upon today, brother in Christ. Amen? Same Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't gotten weaker. It doesn't matter what the, our popular culture preaches about this fake Jesus, right? We know the Jesus of the Bible, that he has all power and all authority, that the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead some 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus who has the power to raise a spiritually dead sinner from spiritual death today. Amen? So we should continue to pray that way. Be faithful to our mission of proclaiming Jesus and trust that God is more than able to raise somebody from spiritual death that way. The same Jesus who kept his disciples from that storm 2,000 years ago. Brother in Christ is the same Jesus who can protect you from the storms of life today, figuratively speaking. No matter what the trial no matter what the attack might be, no matter what the besetting sin might be, no matter what the financial difficulty might be that you have, no matter your relational difficulties in your marriage, in your parenting, with brothers or sisters in Christ, with extended family who doesn't know the Lord, Jesus is more than able. He has you in the palm of his hand, doesn't he? If you're in Christ, he has all authority. He watches and protects us. He's our great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Listen, every single human shepherd that you know, including me, will fail you. People will fail you, but Jesus will never fail you. He's the good, perfect, blameless, almighty shepherd. Amen? Amen. He'll never fail us. And if our faith, listen, if our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith, then brother, There is no need to fear for Jesus is unrivaled in authority and he is the object of our faith, right? Wherever people may fail us, we can rest assured that Jesus will never fail us. Now, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is at the end of Jude, verses verses 24 and 25 of Jude, where it says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, And then Jude verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I love that. Christ, who has all power and all authority, is able, more than able to bring you, believer, to the finish line. Amen. We can trust and savor his unrivaled authority. Thirdly, write this down. As we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' betrayal here, this first scene of his passion, we need to savor his unfailing faithfulness. Savor the unfailing faithfulness of Christ. You may recall that he had just prayed 
in the upper room in John chapter 17, verse 12, these words to his father. While I was with them, speaking to his father with his disciples, I kept them in your name, Jesus says, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says. That was his prayer in the upper room, his high priestly prayer. And now we see Jesus' unfailing faithfulness to protect his disciples here in the garden. In the midst of the disciples' greatest moment of testing and temptation as well. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of of Nazareth. (laughs) I just kept thinking as I read that, interesting that that the text doesn't tell us if they've even gotten off the ground yet, right? I mean, is Jesus about to throw them down again, right? Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Speaking of his disciples. See, he gave them a glimpse here of what he's capable of doing by the mere word of his power, not for his sake, because he's going to let them betray him, right? He's going to let them take, 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 arrest him rather. But he showed them his power, why? For the sake of his own disciples. For the sake of showing his own disciples what he is more than able to do in protecting them and guarding them in this moment of testing and temptation. Notice verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. He had prayed this and now he's keeping his word to guard his disciples. He had said this Something along these lines back in John chapter 10, verse 28, right? No one will snatch them out of my father's hand. What a faithful savior. You know, brothers, the Lord Jesus does this in our lives as well, doesn't he? There are three great offices which belong solely to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our faithful prophet. He is our faithful king. And he is our faithful high priest, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, because Jesus tasted of a, of a broken world, he is more than qualified to be our faithful high priest and to come alongside of us and to bear our burdens and to uphold us in the moment of testing and trial. And we've experienced that in our Christian lives, haven't we? Jesus is so faithful and doesn't fail us in our greatest moments of, of testing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 speaks of this. In that passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 It says, no temptation or testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, believer, if you are in a moment of testing, you are not alone. Many have come before you and have experienced something similar, right? But God is faithful, he says. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In other words, God knows how much you can take. But with the temptation, he says, he will provide also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, that doesn't mean that God will always take away the test or the trial from us, but that he will be actively engaged and faithful to get us all the way through and give us the resources that we need to overcome that temptation and stand firm in the midst of that testing, right? And so Jesus, without fail, protects all of his followers, 
He tasted, brothers, of our humanness that he might come alongside of us as our faithful high priest. Listen to John Owen. And we're going to put this particular quote up on the, on the screen since it's a little bit longer. But listen to John Owen speaking of this. Behold, dear brethren, the real humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think of Jesus as God merely, though he is assuredly divine, but feel Jesus also to be near of kin to you, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. How thoroughly he can sympathize with you. He has been burdened with all of your burdens and grieved with all your griefs. Are the waters very deep through which you are passing? Yet they are not deep compared with the torrents with which he was buffeted. Never a pang penetrates your spirit to which your covenant head was a stranger. Jesus can sympathize with you in all your sorrows, for he has suffered far more than you have ever suffered and is able therefore to save you in your temptations. Lay hold on Jesus as your familiar friend, your brother born for adversity, and you will have obtained a consolation which will bear you through the uttermost deeps. That's good stuff, isn't it? Brother, is this the faithful one, the unfailing one that you strive to look to each moment of the day? Some of you have experienced even just today great moments of trial and testing, right? Maybe in your workplace, maybe in some kind of a relationship, maybe in your marriage, maybe some physical trial. Each of us, to some extent or another, have experienced those testings and those temptations. You know, there's a danger in those moments. One of the most subtle and harmful sins that we could succumb to is self-sufficiency. Thinking that somehow we can do this on our own. But Jesus is the faithful one. He's our high priest. And Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, call us to, to go to him, right? Because he understands our weaknesses, and in the greatest moments of testing and temptation, he is there for us, unfailing in his faithfulness toward us. Fourthly, and finally, because we're running out of time here, we must savor his unmistakable sovereignty. Write that down. Savor Jesus' unmistakable sovereignty. All that happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane, including the arrest of Jesus, mark it, is part of the plan, Right? Plan A is not going to fail. This is not plan B here. And Jesus is in control throughout. He is sovereign over every single moment of this particular arrest. Look at this in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name, John tells us, was Malchus. Picture this. In a reactionary moment, in a moment of, of haste, Peter uncontrollably swings the long sword, aiming for the neck of this servant, and hurts him slightly, right? The wording here is not that Peter cut off Malchus's whole ear, but that Peter swung uncontrollably, in essence, missing all but a piece or a part of this guy's ear. Just a small part here. He meant to chop off everything, right? But Peter, in a moment of haste, misses. Now, I got to be honest with you. First time I read this, I said to myself, well, I don't blame Peter, right? How many of us wouldn't have done the exact same thing on a human level? Seeing the injustice before us and wanting to defend our Lord, maybe we would do the exact same thing as well. But on the other hand, hasn't Jesus been telling them that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, that he's going to go to the cross? They, maybe they didn't understand all the ins and outs of, of Jesus' passion and what was about to happen to him. They're, they're still trying to figure it out. But Jesus has told them that this would happen. 
that this would be all part of the plan. So much so that if you look at verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so the band of soldiers, verse 12, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. In essence, Jesus gives them permission because this was his sovereign plan all along. Later on in verse 36, if you notice, of the same chapter, Jesus is going to say to them, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. This is why Jesus is not going to defend himself, right? Now, he did come to ultimately establish an ultimate kingdom, but that's going to be in the future at his second coming, but that's going to happen. For now he came, as verse 11 says, to drink the cup that the Father had given him. What did that cup consist of? Well, certainly his, his suffering and part of that, his, his agony, his torment, the shame, his pain, his loneliness. But brothers, above all, that cup consists of taking upon himself God's divine judgment for our sins. Jesus will partake of our sins, and therefore God's punishment for our sins. Remember later on, Jesus will cry out with a loud voice, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never had this happened to the, for, for, to the eternal Son of God. The Father and the Son have existed in, in perfect fellowship and communion with one another. Why is Jesus at that moment crying that out? Because the sins of, 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 of us are being poured upon him. Or placed upon him and he's being punished for our sins. I will be the only time in the Gospels where Jesus will refer to his father in that way. What's happening in that moment? God's wrath is being poured out on his son, right? So that Jesus feels the weight of our sins upon himself. And listen, with that, a temporary breach in his relationship with his father. It's the abandonment by the father of his son. Some people want to call that cosmic child abuse, but they're ignorant of what's really taking place, right? And they forget that this is all in fulfillment of the unmistakable sovereign plan of God. For only Jesus qualified to accomplish redemption. Only one who is fully God, eternally God, God of very God could pay for sins. And only one who is fully man, blameless and perfect, could pay for sins. Only Jesus qualified to pay for sins. And that is what is going to take place very soon. And I guess what I'm saying, brothers, is this. You and I, as we walk through these, through these, through these chapters and these verses in the Garden of Gethsemane and the trials of Christ, we need to learn to savor and to relish and appreciate the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because why did he undergo all of this? Why? Really twofold, isn't it? For the glory of his Father and for the good of sinners such as you and I, right? And I think we need to learn to appreciate and relish the person and the work of Jesus. May I ask you tonight, have you come to trust and have faith in this glorious, gracious Savior today? Is that where you're at? Earlier I quoted Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 which says that the, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Think about that if you don't know Christ tonight. 
It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What better place to behold God's kindness for sinners than in Jesus' passion these next few weeks and months? And I pray that there would be many amongst us who would finally make that decision to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And for the rest of us, brothers, those of us who are in Christ, may we never, ever, ever allow the, the, the things that take place here and the suffering that our, that our Savior underwent for us, sinners who deserve hell and condemnation, may these things never become so old to us so that we're not moved in our hearts all the more to worship him and to adore him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, Oh, Lord, I feel like we are treading on holy ground in the things that take place here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, thank you. Thank you for an eternal plan that you set in motion for your son, Jesus, your eternal son, to come into the world to save sinners such as us. Lord, we are humbled by this. And we pray that, Lord, even as we walk through these chapters and these verses, that more than some academic exercise some intellectual endeavor, that, Father, the knowledge that we derive from these wonderful verses of our Lord Jesus, telling of the wonders of his love and his grace for us, that we might be moved all the more in our affections to love him, to worship him, to want to tell a lost and wicked and perverse generation more and more about Christ. We ask you even tonight as we break into our small groups that, Lord, you might allow this time to be so beneficial for our hearts Thank you for the fellowship of, that is so sweet between brothers of like precious faith. I pray that, Lord, we might discuss these things and even draw out the implications and application for our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brothers. Break.